It's not uncommon for hardcore journalists and intrepid documentarians to travel to dangerous hotspots around the world to cover or research important stories. Comic book writers are generally not known for this kind of feat, however. But Joshua Dysart is not your average comic book writer. This award-winning and New York Times best-selling comic book writer traveled to East Africa in 2008 and spent a month there conducting research for the critically hailed Unknown Soldier series about the conflict between Joseph Kony's Lord's Resistance Army and the UPDF. Josh's eclectic but acclaimed writing resume includes work on a wide range of titles such as Conan, Hellboy, and even a graphic novel based on Neil Young's 2003 album Greendale. We talked to Josh about his new project, The Valiant Reboot of Harbinger, how a writer gets a job on a comic book, and whether Toyo Harada or Professor X would win a pie-eating contest. All that and more on the Scripts and Scribes podcast, right now. Welcome to Scripts and Scribes, uh, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're joined by uh, writer Joshua Dysart. Thanks for joining us today, Josh. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of things that uh, I wanted to cover, a few things we touched on before, and um, but a couple of new things, but just sort of as a background, you've done a lot of very eclectic comic work that's sort of all over the board, from stuff like Conan and Hellboy, to, I know, you, your work with Neil Young and Avril Lavigne, um, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, you, you did a comic series on Buddha with Deepak Chopra, <laughs> And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the Unknown Soldier, which is based on the conflict in Uganda, which is very timely with the Lord's Resistance Army, although you obviously did it before it became this sort of media sensation. Um, but your new book, Harbinger, is, the, is only the second superhero-type book that you're tackling, the first being your creator-owned Violent Messiahs. Uh, why is that? Actually, I did a, just just a, a correction. Um, you know, well, first of all, I never really perceived Violent Messiahs as a superhero book, although, I mean, it definitely had people with abnormal powers, you know, blowing shit up. But, <laughs> um, uh, but I also did a book for Penny Farthing Press that I'm really proud of and that has sort of been lost in the midst of, of time. And, um, and I, you know, I'd like for people to seek it out if they can find a, a copy of it anywhere. And it was called Captain Gravity and the Power of the Brill. And it was an intentional homage to um, uh, 40s adventure World War II comics and uh, about a, a, a black superhero uh, in, the, in 1939 fighting mutant Nazis. So, um, so I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's probably my most, like, wholesome... <laughs> um, <laughs> least dark, you know, uh, it's probably the, the book I've done in my life that most um, rises towards both the commercial viability, uh-huh. uh, uh, a commercial viability, but also to sort of like this higher human standard, you know, that, um, so I recommend it. Cool. Awesome. Harbinger isn't going to do any of those things, by the way. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, touching, uh, you know, on Harbinger coming out, uh, what, June 6th from Valiant? That's correct. Um, and, and since that's your latest project... Um, we for- sent it to the printer yesterday. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's very... Yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, the very last notes were done yesterday, so... And, and so for people who have never read Harbinger, the original series that was out in, in the early and mid-90s, um, maybe you can give us a little backstory on Harbinger, you know, on Her- uh, Harada and Peter and what the general story's all about. Sure, yeah. I mean, essentially... The narrative at its core is about um, uh, 
a major, um, 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 the, let's see, the CEO of a major global corporation, his, um, his hubris and his plans to kind of remake the world and, and sort of a, a better vision of the world and all, and all, you know, and all the struggle that, that that would cause, his vision of the world, to rebuild the vision of the world, and then have a bunch of kids with nothing um, start raging against his vision. So there's a bunch of youth revolt stuff in there. There's a bunch of the kind of 1% versus the 99% stuff um, uh, all played out across the superhero pastiche. Um, the, the thing that's going to be interesting in our take, and what's actually interesting about the original take, is that even though this sounds very politically motivated and, and, and it's sort of like uh, I had one reader um, suggest that it was, you know, Ayn Rand versus <laughs> versus some, you know, leftist like uh, coalition, but it's really not that simple. I mean, we're really going to play it a lot more dark. Um, my hope is that at, at times throughout the, the reading of it, uh, the reader will be able to, to both empathize, empathize with the youth culture that's kind of rising up against the corporation and the corporation itself um, and, and the person who runs that, which is Toya Harada, um, a, a, a Japanese man who um, experienced uh, the, the bombing of Japan in 45 and has sort of, um, as, he, as he states, has been born from fire and has sort of decided to, to, um, to kind of reclaim the world for, for a better a better future, and it, and it's and it's just totally dispirited by the baby boomer generation and their complete inability to take all the resources and all the technology that emerged in their lifetimes and use it to create a better world for the for you know for the youth. Mm -hmm. So it's all about it's it's so the real thing is is that the two protagonists and neither one I really perceive as an antagonist right now. The two protagonists are working toward similar ends, but hubris keeps them at each other. And that's really what we're going for. Now, um, Harbinger was obviously the first book that Valiant uh, sort of put out. It was their flagship title. Uh, and, right. And you're coming in and you're sort of reimagining uh, Harbinger. Uh, what sort of uh, challenges did you face doing that? I know we talked a little bit about that before, but um, in terms of how honest are you to the original material or how much freedom and, and, and did they give you to kind of put your own take on it? Yeah, uh, I was given a lot of freedom. Um, and it, but one of the missions that I really felt like with this material was uh, so much about it, the, the stuff about it that feels a little dated and rings a little tinny um, was more like story, uh, story execution issues or, or, and also stuff that was kind of very prevalent in comics book storytelling in the, in the early 90s. But at the core, underneath all of that, the general thrust, the broad strokes of the narrative, all those things are, are great and, and really in place and also very timely. The, the whole youth culture and revolt thing, that's a narrative that is going to always, always be important and always a story that needs to be told. Mm -hmm. So the real trick on this, different than Unknown Soldier, which for me, you know, if I wasn't going to get to tell World War II stories with Unknown Soldier, then I was going to do something that really expressed the way our concept and our and the and the way we perceive war as as a pop culture phenomena has changed. It's not that you don't really need to do that with Harbinger. You know, Harbinger has all. All the clockwork in Harbinger is good and works. All you really need to do is make it is make it personal by 
changing the pacing, fussing with the characterization, um, changing it tonally, and bringing your own voice to it. But you can't really screw with the clockworks inside because it works. Right. So that's, that's my attack on it right now. Um, now, you, speaking of, of Unknown Soldier, you definitely have... Uh, definitely like to bring a sort of realism and depth to your books. It's not just two gigantic muscular dudes pounding on each other. Uh, yeah, that's boring. You know, throwing yeah. each other through buildings and whatever. Um, and, and you bring themes and issues from the real world and sort of adapt them in your books. Um, and so I wanted to, to, to find out why, why do you feel sort of uh, compelled to put, I mean, and granted, I think it's great. Uh, but yeah. why do you feel compelled to, you know, bring issues to light or offer, offer social commentary in, in your comics? Uh, and how much, how much sort of resistance do you get from editors and things? Because oftentimes that makes it, that might make it a little less uh, commercial. It might make uh, yeah. re re reception by the audience a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, oh, well, okay. So the, the, Two questions. The first one is, why do I feel compelled to sure, do that? Sure. And and the and the reason is, I think, <laughs> uh, for lack of like self examination, I think that uh, I don't really know how else to do it. I mean, I, I don't understand where people get their stories. Who are these people who just make stories up out of thin air? And in fact, I even argue that that doesn't even exist. Um, there is no such thing as escapism. You know, all art tells us something about ourselves, whether we intend it to or not. You know, I don't think that Michael Bay means Transformers to be this incredibly didactic, militarist, jingoist <laughs> statement right. uh, about our relationship to society and, and, and conflict. But it is, and there's nothing you can get away from that. So I, um, be, being the type of person who over-intellectualizes everything, um, I don't have any other choice, you know, and so when I get stuck creatively and I come to a point where um, I don't know what the next creative decision is, I have to turn to my theme. And if I don't have a theme that interests me, then I, then I really am lost. And so that, it's the only way I know how to write. Um, having said that, uh, when I finished Unknown Soldier, the depth of the research and the emotional impact of, the, of being intimate with that knowledge was so intense that... It was really my strongest desire first to do science fiction comics so that I could take this obsession I have with our culture mm -hmm. and our species and, um, and just kind of funnel it into something where I could at least make everything up instead of right. <laughs> reading like books on East African politics every fucking day. Right, right. I'm sorry, every day. Sorry about that. Um, uh, but, on the other, but I also just wanted to do something fun, you know, and I wanted to try to see how good I could be at just making something up uh, just making something up. Um, and now what has happened is I have made a brand for myself as somebody who brings uh, a real-world theme into a kind of a pulp scenario. And so it's almost impossible for me to escape it now. Now that's what I'm getting hired to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Having said that, I had several projects last year um, with big properties that I wanted. I wanted, I, I, most of the time I take on other work and I sort of have to wrestle with finding my passion about that work, but there were these two properties that I, I won't mention, but um, two really big properties that your audience would know right off the bat uh, that I had great 
great, interesting social um, thematics <laughs> built around and um, got both both these publishers extremely interested in it. And then eventually um, they became, you know, it was a softening market. They got a little gun shy. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's both the reason why I get hired and it's also the reason why um, my projects don't always make it to fruition. Um, in the sense of Harbinger, to the second part of your question about how much resistance I get from editors, uh, it is unquestionably why Warren hired me, and uh, Warren Simmons being the the, the uh, editor of the four, of the, the currently the line, and um, I. I almost kind of, like I said, I had this response after Unknown Soldier where I just wanted to do fun stuff. And I actually kind of was kind of trying to get on some of the other properties at Valiant. Um, uh, but he just kept he just kept convincing me that Harbinger was the one that I should be writing and that uh, Harbinger was the book that was going to say the most, not just about the Valiant universe, but about our world. And, uh, and now I'm on board. Now I believe in myself as much as he did. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I mean, just listening to your take on Harbinger, you definitely, I think, get the themes, and you, uh, you know, it's, it definitely sounds like he actually put you in the right spot. He actually got the right guy for the right book. So, uh, for oh, thank you. Yeah, we we shall see. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, but I also, uh, I've wanted to ask you about Unknown Soldier. Um, yeah. And for those who haven't read, Unknown Soldier is, is the original book is, is based on World War II. But you actually right. took it in a different direction. Um, in, 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 it's set in, in Uganda with uh, the Lord's Resistance Army and the conflict there with the Ugandan People's Defense Force and that whole thing. Um, so, but in, in something I found absolutely fascinating and something that I don't think I, I've not heard of uh, being done before but uh, a comic book writer going to Africa to a war zone uh, to do research for for a book. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, you know, Joe Sacco has done it quite a bit, and, and to, to greater um, to greater success than I have. But um, but it's not very common. Yeah. I also I do want to state just for the purposes of accuracy and legitimacy, um, there had been a ceasefire in place for a few months by the time I got there. So I was in. I was in a low-impact guerrilla war zone um, and where the conflict at that point, by the time I was there, when violence was emerging in that zone, it was mostly because the lieutenant had abandoned their soldiers, where your average age of your soldier at that point is, I don't know, 13 to 16, mm-hmm. um, and had abandoned their soldiers to go to the, the uh, Juba peace talks in Sudan. So conflict was coming from these kids who had been indoctrinated into the LRA way of life, um, say, uh, opening, you know, taking, like, stealing food from World Food Program truck drivers. Uh, there had been several WFP truck drivers, I think, were killed when I was there. Um, you know, it's, it's like stuff like that. It, it became, like, systematic violence based on these kids trying to figure out how to survive sure. with their tool set that they'd been given. So it, it wasn't a full-blown war zone this week. But ultimately, I think you go into a war zone even if it is sort of a ceasefire war zone but it's still a lawless region with a bunch of kids on drugs with machine guns it still doesn't seem like yeah yeah oh, oh, place yeah one other detail though the, the drugs are the drugs are very much a west african phenomenon oh, okay. i was in east africa they don't really use drugs they use religion to control oh, in east africa oh, interesting yeah. um yeah 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 you know it's it's, it's so tricky uh 
I mean, I, I'm so, so sorry to correct you. It's just that, um, yeah, you know, there's a false equivalency that we, we run a danger in, when we when we take all, all the conflicts in Africa and we sure. merge them into one, we're, we're participating in sort of the exact wrong way to be viewing, you know, all these different cultures and regions and stuff. So just to get it specific. Yeah, yeah no, and I think, again, that's, that's the good thing about the more you learn and, and, and then the, the borders between the different conflicts start to, to solidify more instead of having this grayish kind of uh, 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 border where they're sort of semi-connected and they're not. Um, right, absolutely, and and it's part of this. Uh, it's part of the the problem in Western uh, perceptions of Africa because um, it's very very common for us to look at the entire continent and say here there be tigers, um, when in fact and and you know I have met when I was traveling around I met world travelers and I would be in Zurich and they, and I'd be, and we'd be sharing stories about where we've been and they've been like oh you know I was in I've been to Paris I've been to Tokyo I've been to Africa like what are you talking about right. <laughs> like, the massive continent with all these cultures and and different skin tones and different faith systems and sure. so um it, it's really important that we start looking I think especially those of us in the West start looking at Africa in the same way we look at Europe mm-hmm. um you know uh, otherwise it, it's just another part of this dehumanizing process that we're doing with the entire continent. Sure, sure. Um, now, uh, I, again, still, I'm still sort of fascinated about uh, you going to Uganda to do mm-hmm. this. Can you tell me how that came about? Sure, yeah. Um, I had... So I had been obsessed with Joseph Kony since uh, 9/11 in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go on the, I, I get, I, uh, I research binge um, for no reason at all. It's just <laughs> something that I do, and it's therapeutic, I think. And so after 9/11, I, be, I became absolutely even more fascinated with cults and religious extremism than I was before. Mm-hmm. And this is a fascination that goes back to the very first news story I ever remember. I'm 40 years old, so the very first news story I ever remember is the Jonestown Massacre. It's the first time I sat in front of a a television and understood the news. So I think there's a seed in me, an obsessive seed about faith systems and what they and what they do. And so in 2011, after nine, after you know the, our erections collapsed, I don't mean to be insensitive, but after the American erections collapsed, I um, I was obsessed with uh, researching these religious groups, and I came across Joseph Coney, and it was the first time I'd heard of him, even though he'd been active since 1986. So we had this guy that had been active for. You know, 15 years or whatever the math is, um, and by that I think at that point uh, the figures and they're always hard. But the figures are never constant because um, what happens in the bush almost always stays in the bush. But the figures were something around 20,000 people, uh, children kidnapped and forced into active uh, combat roles, um, and. and I think something like at that point it had been two million, three million displaced human beings forced into IDP camps, um, and that was 2001. And so I, I became obsessed. Mm-hmm. And then years later, when I was when Vertigo came to me and they asked for a unknown soldier pitch, I knew I was competing with several other writers, uh, and that you know my pitch was was going to be 
gauged against all theirs. My first instinct was just to do Unknown Soldier, World War II, the exact same thing, but just be more honest about that war and more honest about war in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if it's all up to me, I'm like Garth Ennis. You know, I can write World War II books all day long. Like, just leave me alone and write about World War II. I'll right. be happy. I think the entire human experience is there. But they wanted, uh, they, they wanted a revamp, and I was pressed against a deadline, and it was almost arbitrary. But I knew... I couldn't, I couldn't pitch on the war on terror because I knew every other writer was going to be doing that. It's the natural go-to for a modern unknown soldier sure. is the war on terror. And that was in 2006, so that was like totally the lexicon was all about the war on terror. The rhetoric was the war on terror. And so the only other conflict I knew anything about that I knew nobody would be pitching on right. was this East African conflict between the LRA and the UPDF. It was literally a mercenary attempt to get a paycheck. Uh, I wrote the pitch, I think, I wrote the basis of the pitch in like two two days or something and sent it off, and I never thought they'd go for it. I really didn't think they'd let me turn the unknown soldier black. I really didn't think that... Uh, uh, and then there was a big silence for a long time. Um, and then I think Blood Diamond came out and some other stuff, you know, and it just kind of, I guess, got hip or whatever, and... Um, and then I got the call. Oh, but, no, that's a very way, long way of leading to me getting to Uganda. Once I got the call, I became terrified that what we were about to do was create the most exploitive post-colonial comic book in the history of the medium, and um, that this was a bad, bad idea. So I told my editor, Pornsack Pichette, uh, uh, hold on, I'm going to get his last name wrong. I'm just going to call him Pornsack. I told my editor, <laughs> Pornsack, and my dear friend, whose name I can't pronounce, whose last name I can't pronounce, that I... Um, uh, you know, that we shouldn't do this. Like, this book is a bad idea. We're going to get roasted alive for it. Um, I mean, I essentially foresaw what happened to us, what happened to Invisible Children last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I essentially foresaw that happening to us. Um, and Pornsack said I was contractually obligated to do the book. And, uh, and so then my next instinct was, well, then I'm going to go to Uganda and because I don't know what else to do to get this even remotely right. And so, um, you know, it was, in the beginning, it started as an act of legitimacy. Um, but then I got there, and, uh, and I reawakened my obsession and my fascination with Joseph Coney himself. And then I began to interpersonalize um, with uh, several of the different ethnic groups of Uganda, both northern and southern Uganda, and uh, and then my fascination really started. And then you know the engine started turning. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, other than obvious research in terms of historical facts, places, and, and things, how important was it for you to tangibly? sort of walk in, in, in that sort of environment mm-hmm. your story. Well, yeah. And I believe that there is such a thing as ethical storytelling, mm-hmm. and I believe there's unethical storytelling. And, um, and for myself, for my soul, and for my development as a creative person, um, going there was one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. Uh, in those, you know, on the creative front, um, uh, now, as far as making the book a viable uh, commercial success, mm-hmm. I might have hindered it. Um, you know, maybe what would have been better is just a, a whiz bang um, kind of. You know, I don't know. How do you even do a treaty on war if you haven't? I mean, I, I, there's only two ways I think that are that are ethical ways to show true, genuine war um, in 
in a pop culture medium, and one is to either do it as a horror show, uh-huh. where it's just awful, and then the other is to do it as a comedy, <laughs> where you just totally take away its power. And uh, I'm not a very good comedy writer, so um, so going there and, and and really, really finding what was important, what became the important story for me, which is mostly how civilians are affected by conflict, uh, that, you know, that, that's that was the most important creative act I've done so far, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Unknown Soldier and a lot of the stuff you've done is not necessarily comic or superhero comic book work, um, although yeah. obviously Harbinger uh, is. Um, now, comics are widely popular in Asia and Europe. The mass public enjoys them thoroughly. It's not seen as sort of a comic book geek uh, the domain of kids and, and comic book geeks and things like that. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that there are a lot of films uh, and popular culture television shows that have been adapted from comics that a lot of people don't realize, things that are non-superhero based, like A History of Violence, uh, 300, Road to Perdition, The Walking Dead, Ghost World, stuff like that. Um, why do you think they're not as widely, comics are not as widely read in the U.S.? Man, you know, that is an interesting, interesting question. And, um, I mean, we also have to ask the question, why are they more widely read in, in Asia um, or Europe? You know, uh, I, I think, and I'm, I'm sort of just talking out my ass here, but, I mean, I think Asia has always had a very, very strong um, visual literacy. Um, if you look at the Japanese floating world prints, or, you know, I mean, it's like, Really incredible what a, what a graphic culture emerged out of all, a lot of the Asian societies, and I uh, I think that might have something to do with the fact that a lot of um, Asian languages are pictographic, mm-hmm. and that um, and that cognitively people who are raised with pictographic languages they also cognitively they become people who think in imagery, whereas here in the West or in Europe. We're mostly dealing with like this codified dashes and dots and slashes, right. and that's our language, you know. So um, that might be why the persistence of the graphic storytelling medium in, in throughout Asia. Um, uh, Europe has always just had a very, very strong art tradition that goes back much further than even than the age of our nation, and that also might be part of it. Um, now, in America, you know, there was a period that was the great golden moment, which lasts from about 1985 to about 1990, when black and white comics were cool, when people were taking copies of comic books to school and it was okay, when you were carrying your copy of The Dark Knight from class to class, mm-hmm. or you were carrying your um, individual issues of Watchmen as it was coming out, and, and the cheerleaders were reading comic books, and, and the hipsters were reading Love and Rockets, and everybody was reading Service. Um, and so that was this amazing moment. And then what we did was we crashed, we cra- we crashed the vessel on on the rocks. We um, a speculator's market began to appear, uh, and then exploitation of that speculator's market began to appear. And then narrative took us took a back row seat to all kinds of tricks like um, you know golden variant covers and and uh, and then the rise of the artist over the storyteller mm-hmm. began to happen and you get early image uh, 
um, which, you know, for those of you who are just following this history, images have gone a long way to repair the damage it did, but the images, I think, are in part direct, uh, responsible for part of this. And then we had a massive, massive crash throughout the 90s. Um, and then we got bottlenecked into a distribution system that just unfortunately sticks us only in um, these amazing comic book stores that I, I love going to, but it became our sole way of, of getting out to the public. So now we're in a bottleneck distribution system. We're in the middle of a crash, and we're in a weakening market. And to this day, I don't really think, even though we've, we've certainly stabilized, I don't think we've overcome um, the problems of that first crash in the early 90s. And, and not only that, but even as readers come back, the big publishers continue to respond to the market as if they're in a post-crash world. And it works, um, which, is even, which is even more infuriating. So massive multi-crossovers, um, all kinds of universe rebooting gimmicks, like all this stuff uh, that is so inside baseball that only people who've been following comics for a long time can really kind of kind of can participate in, and it keeps us from getting a new readership. Right. Uh, and then the final, the, the, the final real kind of thing that keeps us as an alternative medium or a medium without a mainstream is um, it's the preponderance of superheroes. Mm-hmm. That is not that superheroes are not cool. They certainly are. There's something fascinating happening happening there with power fantasies and our needs. Our need to rise up and the Godhead amongst humanity and all that jazz that Grant talks about so well. But at the same time, it's like eighty percent of our medium is superheroes, man. Like I challenge you. What if you know? And we'll make actually this is kind of happening in novels now where everything is becoming like vampire novels or something. But I challenge you to look at cinema or to look at any other storytelling medium, television, and find me you know, one genre that so dominates. Right. And so what happens is it's, uh, the perception of comics is that we're all superhero comics um, and that we can't tell the same kinds of stories with the same kinds of depth as television or cinema or novels. And, um, and, and, and it's crippling us because it's keeping it's keeping people who are you know gen, genuinely into story narrative away when in fact we are just as viable a medium and in many cases I would argue a more viable medium than uh, than any of those other storytelling mediums. We certainly interact with the with the reader way more and give the reader way more in regards to. Um, that the reader has control over pace and that the reader utilizes their imagination more than any other medium is asking them to, except for maybe the novel. So I think that's our problem. Our our problem is a combination of the crash coupled with this total view that superheroes is the entirety of our, what we do, that we're a bit bang medium and and we're not, we don't have to be in the very least. Right. Uh, what's your take uh, or feeling on uh, e-comics, digital downloads? I mean, it's you know, it's the future. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, that's my feeling. <laughs> I can't. I can't really uh, good wander for, around. Good for the industry, or yes, uh, okay. yes, it is. Uh, I mean, hard for the industry, sure. tough for the industry, very difficult for all of us who fetishize books. And I'm surrounded by books right now in my, my house, and they, they overflow. It's the only thing I have in my life that, that is taking over. But um, it's very hard for my generation to uh, to face the reality that we're moving on. But it is ultimately good. You know, I, I, have this, I go to this juice bar every day for breakfast because I'm a hippie. And... Um, 
and and the guy who runs the juice bar is like forty five year old guy, four kids, never really read comics, ex military, great guy, um, got got an iPad, came across the Comicsology uh, app, and now he's reading comics on his iPad. You know, at, at forty five years old. Mm-hmm. If that is in any way uh, an indicator of how we can affect the consumer and how we can get out of our distribution bottleneck, um, then yes, it is good for it's great for yeah, it's great. Right. I mean, there are downsides, obviously, but I mean, we got to move on. And it would be ridiculous to have a debate about not participating in ebooks or not being part of the you know this kind of social media shift. I mean, I'm sorry, the digital media shift. I mean, it would it would be a useless argument. Right. Right. Holding on to the eight tracks, so to speak. Yeah, yeah precisely. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, all those player pianos were awesome. <laughs> um, now, I, I just like to touch, since a lot of listeners would be uh, likely to be comic fans, but also aspiring comic book creators. Um, yeah. Maybe you could go into a little bit about how a comic book writer, per se, would get a assignment writing a book um how did you get harbinger or swamp thing for example um and once on the book what are your responsibilities do you often get the books by based on a pitch that you give and they hire you based on that or do they hire you based on your previous work and then hand you off to your own devices um based on your previous track record yeah, so, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of stages to this. And obviously, the further you are into your career, the more people are aware of what your voice is and what you do well, assuming you haven't been pigeonholed, which is an extremely... If you're a very versatile writer, like I like to think that I am, it can be very frustrating because once you nail something and you're ready to move on and try the next creative exercise for yourself, they just want you to do that one thing over and over again. Right, right. But I think part of the process of getting this gig is we've got to go back to the very beginning to when you don't have a body of work in the public eye that can help you you know, that you're standing on top of, for lack of a better term. You're at the bottom of the hill. Right, and right. Um, my path to first getting published and first then getting work from other publishers might not be a viable option anymore because of my generation and because I was publishing my first self-published work was when there was nothing but print. Right. There was no Internet to self-promote. There was no I didn't have any of that stuff. So... I can only speak on my experience, but essentially my experience is I self-published with a group of friends, uh, and, and I was broke for about five years, and then, and then I got my first work for Chaos Comics. I don't know if anybody remembers them, uh, doing books that weren't in my aesthetic and certainly weren't in my wheelhouse, but was helping me eat. And then for another five years, I was semi-broke. Um, and then I finally started to really make a strong living after 10 years, which is the very first thing I think every, uh, every person trying to break into comics should just take into account is that, um, there's no such thing as breaking in. It's a 10 year process of getting to know people, going to every single convention, being a presence in the community that is comics. Um, and spending a lot of money, a lot of money going to cons, a lot of money self-publishing, and just being in the community before an editor who you've befriended calls you <laughs> late one night and says, oh, my God, my writer dropped the ball. I need 22 pages in 24 hours. Can you do it? Right. And then you do it, and then that's it. And then you're in. Now you're in this guy's Rolodex, and it's dive. Uh Once that happens, 
then the process becomes a lot like this. Um, if you're being true to your voice, then no matter what you're doing, whether it be Unknown Soldier or Avril Lavigne, <laughs> uh, which it should be noted, I, you know, I have no respect for Avril Lavigne's music or anything like that. But if you're true to your own voice, and, and you can find passion in whatever you're doing, then, then that voice will start to emerge and people will see it. And that will affect the kind of work that comes back at you that people offer you. My general experience is this. If somebody has a property and they want to launch it and, um, and, they, and they, they don't really know how yet. And so they come to me and I will pitch them a take. Like, this is my take on your property. Sometimes I'm competing with other writers. And sometimes, you know, it's it's just me. They're just interested in working with me. Um, uh, but ultimately, I am given that freedom. Um, I would not come onto a property with an established storyline unless that storyline was super, super intriguing to me. I wouldn't really let a publisher dictate the storyline to me. And uh, the only time I really allowed that to happen was... Um, when I was working with Mike Mignola on BPRD and on Hellboy, right. and uh, that's because that's because I I, I could learn I learned from Mike. You know what I mean? I mean I took that job a to work on in that property and to, to work on on those ideas, but also because Mike Mignola is one of the great geniuses of our medium. Um, I believe he dreams in comics. <laughs> I don't believe there's any motion or sound in his dreams. Um, I think he knows how to do a comic book page better than anybody, and I think it's somebody who's not an artist. There was nothing I could do but learn from him, and that's exactly what happened. So, but in general, I'm pretty true to my, you know, it, you have to let me tell the story. I, I take notes very well. I love working with editors, um, especially an editor who's a perfectionist. I cannot stand editors who are just deadline jockeys. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, if you don't let me tell my story, you know, then I, I mean, what am I doing here? You know, I could go, I could be in advertising and I could sell my soul or something. <laughs> um, cool. Now we're at the part of the, of the uh, interview where we have a little rapid fire just so we can get a little bit more insight into you. Um, nice. Sort of either or questions. Um, I know you're from Texas, correct? I am from Texas, that's right. Excellent. So uh, this one probably is, the, the first couple are probably pretty easy. Uh, Longhorn or Sooner? I don't even know what that means. Longhorns <laughs> are UT, right? <laughs> right, correct. <laughs> I think you are the worst Texan ever, although that's not necessarily <laughs> an insult. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was the, what was, is Longhorn, which is the type of cow, what was the other? Uh... Sooner. Sooner? Yeah. What's a Sooner? From the University of Oklahoma. Oh, I see. I see. Um, well, if those two tribes go to war, and I have to pick a side, yes. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I probably would be a reporter uh, in the conflict, so therefore I would be uh, neutral. I, I love that answer, and that's that's very you. In that, uh, you kind of just pick your own path. I love that. That's great. Um, this one, I think you will have no problem answering. Uh, Rocking in the free world or skater boy. Definitely rocking in the free world. Um, you did unknown soldiers, so better. This is a better known soldier, Adi Murphy uh -huh. or Carlos Hathcock. Wow, yeah. Carlos. Oh, cool. Very cool. Um, better swamp or slash wetland, uh, bog or a marsh. 
<laughs> bog. <laughs> nice. I just wanted to throw in the word bog. I just I couldn't resist. <laughs> I know bog is such a great word. <laughs> yeah. You get bogged down. You never get marched down. That's true. You know. That's true. Um, uh, better devil or hell, Hellboy. I don't know. That was, that was a stretch. But uh, Satan from South Park or the robot devil from Futurama. Satan from South Park. Cool. Uh, better, I guess, or it could be worse. Harbinger of the future. Ravens or comets? <laughs> the uh, worst harbinger of the future. Ravens or comics? Comets. 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 Oh, comets. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, cell phone. Uh, um, definitely comets. I mean, you know, ravens, that, that's superstition, but a comet can actually, <laughs> you know, screw our shit up. You know what I'm saying? Right. A comet is actually a real danger. Right. Very, very pragmatic. Um, yes, I'm a pragmatic person. Um, and lastly, who would win in a pie-eating contest? Toyo Harada or Professor X? <laughs> Let's think about it. Oh, definitely Toyo Harada. <laughs> Toyo Harada can do all kinds of stuff that Professor X can't do. Professor X has got his Jedi mind trick. He can read a few minds. Right. But Toyo Harada can, you know, he, he can psychically, atomically break down the pies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess you'd win. Awesome. Um, well, that's all the time we have for now. Uh, special thanks to uh, you, Josh, for joining us today. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Joshua Dysart. Um, you're also on Facebook, which will have all the links on our website, scriptsandscribes.com backslash Joshua Dysart. And you have your own website, joshuadysart.com, although you do have a disclaimer. <laughs> yes, I do. I, uh, it's true that I have um, been negligent of my website. It's been about two years. I just recently posted for the first time in two years there. But uh, we're working on it. It is up and rolling. Please go to joshuadysart.com. I'm going to start treating it with love again. And very, very soon, I hope to have the ability to navigate around it a lot more clean, aesthetically pleasing, and easy. So. And your, your most recent post in two years is on Harbinger, coming out June 6th. So people should definitely buy that. Absolutely. I do. If I have an opportunity, I would just like to pimp two other things. I... Um, I currently uh, am in the midst of writing, almost done with the second book, the prequel series to The Dark Crystal. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, I, get to, I got to actually write the, the moment at which the crystal cracks, which is super, super exciting. Wow. Um, so that'll be out through Archaea Press uh, with beautiful art by Alex Shakeman and, um, uh, and a, a painter whose name, her name escapes me now, unfortunately. I'm so sorry about that. Um, but the work looks great. Uh, and then I also wrote and I'm done with, and now we're like having a little bit of publishing problems and trying to find a place to publish it. But uh, it's coming very, very soon from Full Clip uh, Entertainment, um, a kind of sprawling global political thriller called Patriots. So keep an eye out for that. Hopefully uh, by the end of 2012 or early 2013, you're going to see something about that. Cool. That's great. Um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I guess also if, any listeners have questions about the craft or business of writing, feel free to send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. Uh, there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll try to drag down some answers for you from Josh or anyone else who we can wrangle of uh, comparable uh, experience and intelligence, although I don't know how many of those people there are. To you. <laughs> oh, sweet. I don't know about intelligence, but I do have experience. 
I, I was I'm like an old hooker. <laughs> I was going to go, uh, I don't want to say the other way, but uh, I, I think your intelligence far exceeds any sort of, of, of resume that you, you may have, because uh, it's always <laughs> Thank you. Well, if you saw my resume, that's, that's absolutely no, true, absolutely, but thank absolutely. you. No, 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 not at all. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's not to, uh, again, bash the superhero genre, because that's the reason I think I personally, and a lot of people got into comics, you know, especially at a young absolutely. age. Absolutely. Um, but I know that, uh, and I appreciate the fact that the sort of the depth and, and sort of, of uh, uh, the themes and the issues you bring into, into books, which aren't always there. Let's, let's be kind in saying that. Um, so, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. You know, my hope is, I mean, Harbinger's going to be a little bit of a test, so I really hope that everybody out there at least gives the first issue a shot. But it's going to be interesting because I'm not shying away from my traditional M.O., and now we're applying it to um, a very, very loose interpretation of the superhero genre. So, I, I mean, I think if it's not a new attack on superheroes, it's definitely a, a rare attack on superheroes. Um, and by attack, I don't, I don't mean I'm attacking superheroes. I mean, you know, a rare way to execute the superhero narrative. So, I, I mean, I really do hope people dig it and at least check it out. I'd like to see it run for a while. We have really big plans, so I'm, I'm really, I want to whip up Look up the readership, so Very give it a shot, kids. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely, I'd love to. Cool, awesome. Well, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll hopefully, hopefully hear from us again soon. Thanks. Cool, thanks so much, Kevin.